Well, given what's happened so far, it'd be very difficult to miss the fact that this is the 240th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And you know, although we're gathered here this morning to celebrate God, to worship God, to ponder us the glorious implications of the things he has given us, it's really been impressed upon me that Independence Day, July 4th, especially 2016, is a very significant day for American Christians. Matter of fact, I, I want to declare that July 4th, 2016, should be a day of abundant thanksgiving for all of us in this room. Everyone in this room today is blessed far beyond what most Christians throughout history have ever known. And we're not talking about just material blessings that we have, but the fact that today we can sit in this room without fear, today we can sit in this room and pursue Scripture in such a manner that really was unknown throughout most of church history, and we begin the story of why that's true in the 15th century. This morning, I think God would be pleased if we just moved down through the years and noticed some significant events that have resulted in what we have today. And the first is in the 15th century. First event that I would highlight this morning is Johannes Gutenberg's development of the movable type printing press. Now, movable type was invented in China, and the first movable type fonts or script or whatever you might call it was made out of, uh, they were made from ceramic. And some have said it took thousands of characters for the Chinese alphabet. I don't know Chinese, and I wonder is thousands an exaggeration, but I will say hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of characters to make the necessary fonts or types in order to print anything in Chinese. Later, it was moved over into Korea. As a matter of fact, the oldest document we have that is printed by metal moving type exists today in Korea, printed in uh, the 1300s. Chinese, after a while, began to try brass. They tried carving wooden fonts to use. But all of this took so much labor that it was extremely difficult to create enough that would last and work. And not only that, as we say, the hundreds of characters required to write in Chinese. So movable type really didn't catch on as a result of what was done in China. Johannes Gutenberg in Mons, Germany, was a goldsmith, a very good goldsmith. And as with any good goldsmith, he had developed certain alloys mixing gold with other metals so the gold could be used. It was firmer, not as soft as gold would be. And we don't know why, but for some reason he became intrigued with the idea of producing some kind of a movable type that he had heard about that could be used to present books. One barrier he did not have is this, European languages, most of them had less than 30 characters, so that would not be the problem to 
Chinese had with all of their hundreds of characters they needed. And as he began to think and ply and talk with his co-workers, he invented what was called a hand mold, which enabled him and his workers to make fonts consistently and make them quickly. And then he devised a means of typesetting. You know, today as we sit at our typewriter, our computer keyboards, we don't think we get home base and we just type. And so he was able to devise a means of setting up type that his workers could just do that without thinking and put the type in place. And so Gutenberg's movable type printing press began a whole new era as far as books were concerned. He first began developing that in 1450. In 382, Damasus, who was the Bishop of Rome, had commissioned a scholar, Jerome, to try to revise the old Latin Bible. He said, you know, there, we see some flaws in it. There are manuscripts that probably don't fit. And so he commissioned Jerome to, with all the available manuscripts he could find, to revise Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the old Latin Bible. And so Jerome began that work, and not only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did he begin to go throughout the rest of the Bible. By the time of his death, he had translated the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, Hebrew into Latin, Greek into Latin, and created what came to be known as the Vulgate Bible, Vulgate meaning common language in Latin. And that was a Bible that was used throughout most of Christendom. In 1453, the Council of Trent officially declared this is the official Bible for the church. And today, any Roman Catholic Bible in any language cannot in any way contradict the Latin Vulgate. So in Gutenberg's time, the Vulgate was the Bible. Two years after it had been declared the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church, he printed the entire Vulgate Bible. It's estimated that on a movable press, a printer could print 3,600 pages a day. <laughs> Using the primitive writing methods that were available at that time, it is estimated a monk copying scripture by hand could only do, and this amazed me, four to five pages a day. <laughs> uh, must have been hard materials they used. And so suddenly, books could be printed, and the first book that was printed of any size was the Bible. Now think about that. Today, you and I have so many Bibles, <laughs> sometimes we don't know what to do with them. All kinds of versions, you can get them online, you have them on your telephone, so when the preacher's speaking, he doesn't know whether you're texting or reading your Bible. But think about this. Prior to 1455, you could not have said to a Christian, get into the Word. It was impossible. The only way you could have any portion of the Bible was to find someone who had a portion and then talk them into allowing you to copy that little bit, and that's all you would have. Not only that, many Roman Catholic priests didn't even have a Bible. All they had was the breviary, which is the various liturgies, which had scriptures encased throughout them, but they did not have scripture, the Word of God. 
as we have it. It's hard to think of any blessing greater than we have today, is there? And the fact we have scripture that we can read, meditate upon, argue about, just totally impossible prior to 1455. What a blessing we have in that work that has been done through the printing press. Second event that I would point to is October 1517. Martin Luther was a doctor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. He was a town preacher of Wittenberg. And just a few years before, in 1515, actually two years prior to this event, Pope Leo X, Pope of Rome, Bishop of Rome, wanted to complete the building of St. Peter's Basilica. And the construction had started, but he needed more money. And so how could he raise money? And one idea that came to him was to sell indulgences. According to Roman Catholic theology, when a person is baptized as an infant and continues living in a state of grace, committing no mortal sin but venal sin, if he dies in that state of grace, he is guaranteed heaven as his destination. But almost everyone who dies, dies imperfect. And so there must be a season in which one, in some cases, pays for his sins, or at least he is purged, as, as the writings say, purged from his affection with created things. And after that perfection takes place, he can enter the presence of God perfect. Now, as you read the writings in Roman Catholicism, you find in different periods the, there are different concepts of what actually happens in purgatory. But in Luther's time, it was believed to be an actual place. And an individual in purgatory in that time was believed to suffer the pain of fire greater than any pain any human could ever know upon the earth. So purgatory was a horrible place. It was possible for a person to escape purgatory, or at least to have his time lessened, through various things. And one was receiving an indulgence from the Pope. Now, indulgence can also be translated kindness. And so, in order to raise money to finance the building of St. Peter's Basilica, Pope Leo X sent indulgence preachers all over the world, that part of the world where Roman Catholicism existed, to sell indulgences. And for a certain price, you could buy a plenary indulgence. And the saying went forth, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So you could buy an indulgence for some loved one who had gone before, or perhaps even for yourself before you died. And the money was used to build St. Peter's Basilica. Many things about Pope Leo's venture troubled Luther. And as he began to ponder things that troubled him, he felt he had to do something. And so he wrote 95 theses. Now, the 95 theses were things that Luther was challenging 
about this whole procedure and the plan was when a scholar did this and scholars did this sort of thing that your thesis would be printed by the university press. There'd be several copies made. They'd be sent to your superior and to everyone who needed to be involved in this disputation, debate, discussion, whatever. And it was also common then to nail these on the door of the church. Luther did that October 15, 17. Think of that, next year, 500th anniversary of that happening. Well, copies of it didn't just go to the proper authorities. <laughs> but because it was printed, it started to spread more and more. Copies got in the hands of people. People started reading them. People were now reading Bibles. They were testing the church by what they found in the Bibles. Here, a doctor of the church was challenging the church, and the Reformation was born. But with the Reformation also came great persecution. There was no separation of church and state. And after many different things happened, finally the arrangement in, in Roman Catholic countries with the Holy Roman Emperor and so on, it was decided that whatever territory you were in, whatever religion the man, the governor of that territory held would be the official religion of your territory. And if you disagreed with that religion, then you were guilty of treason <laughs> and would be punished. Roman Catholicism in many ways at that time had incorporated into its thinking Old Testament concepts. And one was the concept of the Levitical priesthood. And in the Law of Moses, it was a responsibility of the Levitical priest to punish people and execute people for certain sins. For instance, murder, kidnapping, dishonoring parents. Think of that young person cuss out mom and dad, stone him to death. That was the law. Breaking the Sabbath, certain sexual sins. So because this Old Testament concept so permeated the church, it became the responsibility of the church to kill those who were presenting heresy and evil that they thought would destroy the church. Now, both Catholics and Protestants did this. Catholics preferred burning people at the stake Sometimes a bag of gunpowder would be tied around the neck so as the flames got close enough that would explode and you'd die quicker. One Anabaptist woman in Amsterdam, they stuffed her mouth full of gunpowder to hasten death. Protestants usually preferred to execute people by the sword or by drowning. To drown someone, you tie their hands together and then you pull the knees up over their arms and stick a pole between so they can't struggle and you throw them in the river. Some Protestants preferred strangling. A person was tied to a post and a rope put around their neck behind the post and somebody tightened the rope until finally you were strangled. Some were dismembered and some disboweled. There was no separation of church and state, and it was a dangerous thing. 
to destroy or rather to disagree with the religion of the area in which you live. It's interesting, Henry VIII died. His son, who was nine years old, Edward became king. Edward died when he was 15 years old, but he already was starting to exercise power. But he was replaced by his half-sister, Mary. Mary was a strong Catholic. Henry VIII had left the Roman Church. His son Edward had moved more toward Protestantism, but Mary was a strong Catholic, and during her six years of reign, she executed 600 Catholics. After Mary died, her sister Elizabeth, half-sister, became queen. They called her Good Queen Bess, but Good Queen Bess executed 200 Catholics and disemboweled some. In other words, you open a person and tear his guts out before you kill him. Michael Sattler, one of the earliest Anabaptists, had been a Catholic priest. His wife, Margarita, had been a nun. And as they began to read the Word of God, they saw things in it that disagreed with the Catholicism that was at least practiced in their area. And they became early leaders of the Anabaptist movement. And one doctrine of Anabaptist movement was infant baptism doesn't have scriptural basis. People are to be baptized only if they are believers. They pointed, for instance, to the Ethiopian eunuch who said, here's water, what does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe, you may. So on and so on. Because... Sattler and his wife began to proclaim that baptism was only appropriate for believers. He and his wife were constantly fleeing and on the run. When they finally were arrested and condemned, Sattler was put on a cart, and here's the punishment the court prescribed for him as he was traveling to the place where he was going to be burned alive. Along the way, they would take hot irons and poke his flesh. At one point, they cut out his tongue. And even while he was at the stake burning, his body was poked with hot irons, and his wife was drowned. The point I make is this. With all of this horrible, horrible history, is 500 years ago, Tulsa Christian Fellowship could not have existed. Think of that. It could not have existed. Everybody in this room today would be in jail or dead because of the climate of those days. You know, even in the American colonies, that was true. The Anglicans, actually, uh, the uh, Virginia was officially an Anglican state. And at one point, a group of Baptists migrated, coming from England, into Virginia. And they began to preach, and as a result, they ended up in jail. They ended up whipped. At one point, uh, people slashed the hands of Baptist preachers. In New England, the Quakers had similar experiences. <laughs> they were tied to carts and hauled through streets and branded with an H and holes bored in their tongues. 
course, the Quakers kind of brought some of it on themselves. They were a feisty bunch. Today we think of Quakers as peaceful folk, but back then they were feisty. For example, one Sunday, a congregational preacher was beginning the second hour of his sermon. Aren't you glad it isn't that way now? But he was beginning the second hour of his sermon, and an Anabaptist man, or rather, pardon me, a Quaker walked in with two empty bottles, and he said, God will smash you for all of this heresy just like he smashes these bottles. And he broke them on the floor and left. Another Sunday, a naked Quaker young woman walked in in the middle of the service, walked to the communion table, looked at everybody and walked out and didn't say a word. So you can see why the Puritans and the congregations were a little upset with the Quakers. <laughs> Persecution in the colonies. Freedom has not come easy. And that brings us to the next event, first being Gutenberg, second being Luther, third, that which we celebrate this weekend. The British colonies had been rebelling against Britain for several months. And the representatives to the other nations of the world were saying, you're not going to get the other nations of the world to respect us as long as we're viewed as British colonies. Something has to be done to say, we're no longer British colonies, but rather we are sovereign states. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, you'll notice that's the way it starts. The reason we're doing this is we need to explain to the nation of the world why we're breaking off from the British and now forming our own nation. Declaration of Independence was debated, finally signed on uh, the 3rd of July, published July the 4th. Victory was achieved in 1781. By the way, because of the issuance of the Declaration of Independence and saying we now are a nation and we're not colonies of the British, the French then declared war on the British and the Spanish declared war on the British. So the British were having to fight three fronts, fight in America, fight the French, and fight the Spanish. And you wonder how successful the revolution would have been if the French and Spanish hadn't been fighting the British at the same time because they had to send forces in all directions. The victory was achieved in 1781. There was all kinds of meetings and finally articles of incorporation were, or confederation rather, were decided upon in 1781. And then again after much discussion, 10 years later the Constitution was ratified in 1791. But there were many who were a part of that Constitutional Convention who were worried that the federal government would have too much control over the states. And one of those was James Madison. He said, we do not want to create a central government that controls the states. And so he began to push for a Bill of Rights, but the Federalists opposed him greatly. Madison was from Virginia. The Baptists from Virginia pushed him hard. Don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. And so finally the Bill of Rights, there originally were several articles. Not all of them are ratified. Ten were. One is still waiting to be ratified, by the way. 
still out there. But the purpose of the Bill of Rights was to restrain the federal government. And it was passed in 1792. And here's the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment to the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government or to regress grievances. And the Second Amendment bearing arms was for the same reason so citizens could defend themselves against a powerful government if need be. You know, this morning, every one of us in this room has a huge reason to give thanks that we're here at this time with this blessing we have. We can meet together without fear. We can argue. We can even publish heresy. <laughs> and nothing happens except just a good, healthy argument. Maybe we can even start our own sect. And nobody goes to jail. We have great reason to give thanks because we have the Bible. Something throughout most of the history of the church no Christian could have dreamt of having except those in certain monasteries and so on. I believe July 4, 2016 should be a day of abundant thanksgiving for American Christians. It's also a day that puts on us great responsibility. Remember in one of his parables, Jesus said, For from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom is entrusted much, to him will be asked more. The freedom we have is not only something for which to be thankful, but in a way it's a burden. It's a burden that we make the most of it that we do not take it for granted, that we do all that we can to preserve it lawfully, and that we do all that we can to proclaim the gospel which where we now live and when we now live, we're free to do. I think it'd be wonderful if we would decide July will be the month in this month, every one of us, every day, prays for our nation. That the forces that would take away what we have would fail. That we can continue in this liberty, rejoicing in what God has given us. Imbibing of it, relishing it, and using it. Thank you, Father the way you have blessed us as a people. We would not stand before you and say you have done this because we deserve it. It is beyond our understanding, but because of your grace, you've given it to us. We thank you through Jesus. Amen.